This morning we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. You can turn there. It is right at the end of your Bibles or near the end of your Bibles. Uh, in your worship guide you do have a sheet this morning on the back side of that announcement sheet. There's a space for you to take notes if you feel inspired to do so this morning. But let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Truly, God to you is dominion and kingship and power forever and ever. And we ask this morning in the preaching of your word that you would rule us by your word. That you would be our good king. Guide us how to be your citizens and subjects. And show us how we can live as your representatives and even as kings in this life. Help us to glorify you well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Josh mentioned in the announcements um, the refugees coming over from Afghanistan in light of the things that have been going on over there recently. And I want you to just imagine for yourself that you are one of those refugees. That you are in a country that is not your own. A culture that is not your own. Speaking a language that you do not speak or do not speak well. Eating strange food among people who generally don't look like you. Imagine what that would feel like. Have any of you ever been in a situation where you were an outsider, 
Maybe you were in a culture that was not your own. I know the Golaxons have experienced this in their time in China. Maybe, though, you've traveled widely, traveled internationally, and sometimes even traveling to different parts of the United States feels like a completely different world. But have you ever felt like an outsider? And how does that feel? At the very least, it feels uncomfortable. Maybe you feel unseen. Or paradoxically, maybe you feel extremely seen. Maybe you feel very visible because of the ways that you are different from the people that are around you. And that leads you to feel fear or anxiety. In the letter of 1 Peter, Peter addresses his Christian audience as sojourners and exiles. To be a sojourner or an exile is to dwell in or be passing through a place that is not your home. And as Christians, we are sojourners and exiles in this world and in this life. And often that visible difference between us and the rest of the world leads to discomfort. It leads to friction throughout the history of the church. It has often led to persecution and suffering. And that reality is more keenly felt, I think, in some places and ages than in others. But the reality of us being sojourners and exiles who will face sufferings and temptations and trials in this life is not something that is unique only to Christians in other cultures or in, different, in other ages, but is something that is applicable to us and instructive for us in our place and in our age. One question that I think we can ask in the middle of the sufferings and trials of this life and feeling like strangers and exiles in this world is, if Christ truly is our victorious king, like he tells us he is, then why are these things happening to us? Has our king abandoned us? Has our king forgotten us? And our answer to those questions needs to be an emphatic no. Our king has not abandoned us. He is still reigning over us. And as we'll see in our passage today, Christ is also reigning through us as he calls us to live kingly lives in this present age and gives us hope of glory where we will reign with Christ for eternity. Our big idea this morning is that we must live kingly lives in the midst of suffering, looking forward to the coming kingdom of glory. We must live kingly lives in the midst of suffering, looking forward to the coming kingdom of glory. And we're going to look specifically at the kingly role of elders and the kingly role of all Christians. So let's look first at the kingly role of elders. And I'm going to highlight for us three aspects of the kingly role of elders from this passage. And the first is that their role is a representative role. Their role is a representative role. Peter opens chapter 5 here in his letter. This is his concluding section to the letter. He opens it with a set of exhortations to the elders of the church. And I want you to notice how Peter uses 
multiple different words to describe the role of elders. The first is simply elder. Right away in, in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. This comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which is where we get our word Presbyterian, because we are an elder-led church and an elder-led denomination. And it emphasizes the, the experienced wisdom of the elders. It doesn't necessarily mean that to be an elder, you have to be over 60 years old. But it does mean that you are an experienced Christian. You have the wisdom that comes from living as, an, as a Christian. That's why elders are called elders. The second word is shepherd. It's used as a verb in, ver in verse 2, where Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And this word emphasizes the caring and the protecting and the feeding and the leading roles of elders. This is actually where we get our word for pastor. It comes from the Latin word for shepherd. So if you call Josh Pastor Josh, you're really calling him Shepherd Josh. You're referring to that aspect of his role as an elder in the church. And then the last word that he uses here is, in the ESV, it's translated as two words, as exercising oversight in verse 2. This is related to a word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament as a noun, as overseer. And it's sometimes translated as bishop comes from the root episkopos, which is where Episcopalians get their church name. And I'm not going to go into all of the reasons for why I don't think we should have bishops right now in the church. It's related to the fact that bishop and elder in this passage actually refer to the same exact group of people, not two distinct groups of people. But that's not the point of this sermon, so I won't get too deep into that. But the reason that I bring up those three specific words, elder, shepherd, and overseer, is that the words shepherd and overseer in 1 Peter are not only used of elders. I want you to look with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, back a page, verses 24 through 25. He himself... Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. These are come from the same root words in the Greek as shepherd and exercising oversight in 1 Peter 5. Then if you go back to 1 Peter 5, and you look at verse 4, Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd, that's speaking of Christ, and again, it's that same root word for shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is so important for us to understand. Who is the chief shepherd? Who is the overseer, the king and ruler of the church? Is it Josh and Jesse and Chris and Bill? No, there is only one true chief shepherd. 
and pastor of the church. And it's Jesus himself. But at the same time, elders are then called to live out in the church a shepherding and an overseeing role. And I think a good term for this is that they do this as under shepherds. Jesus himself is the chief shepherd, and they are the under shepherds. Another important thing for us to notice in this is the connection in the, in the scriptures between the concept and role of a shepherd and that of a king. The king that is probably most well known in the Old Testament, King David, was himself a shepherd king. In Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a promise of a coming Davidic king who would act as a shepherd over the people of Israel. It's Ezekiel 34, 23. It says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus Christ, as our king, is our shepherd but he has given us elders who function in a kingly role and a shepherding role in the life of the church. But they do that as representatives, not as little dictators who get to do whatever they want to do. It doesn't mean that our elders are infallible, right? They are not Christ. They're not little sovereign kings over Livingstone Church. But this does mean that we should take our elders seriously as people who have a God-given authority over our spiritual lives. We should listen to them when they exhort us. We should go to them for guidance in the middle of the trials of life. Don't underestimate the gift of godly elders in the life of our church. So the kingly role of elders is a representative role. Second, it is a directed role role. It's a directed role. Elders don't just get to make things up on the fly or do things as they see fit in the church. They are accountable to the chief chief shepherd for how they fill their role, and they go to his word for guidance. And here in 1 Peter 5, we have words of guidance and exhortation for how shepherds should go about their role. In verses 2 and 3, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he gives a list of do's and don'ts. Well, really, it's don'ts and do's. He gives what not to do first, and then what to. Not this, but this. This is what he says. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I want to look at these three pairs briefly. And just a note for you, this applies directly to the elders, but I think that there's instructive elements here for anybody in a leadership role. So don't worry, if you're not an elder, you don't have to check out during uh, this set of exhortations to you as the church. So first, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. There's an early church theologian and church leader named Ambrose of Milan. He was incredibly influential, but he didn't begin his career as a church leader in the ministry or as a theologian. 
He was raised in a fairly wealthy family, and so Ambrose, before he had turned 30, had already gone up the ranks and was a governor in northern Italy. Now, while Ambrose was a governor, there was a theological controversy going on in the 4th century. There was a controversy between the Orthodox Christians and the Arians over the identity of Jesus. Was Jesus fully God or not? And so in the middle of this controversy, the Bishop of Milan, one of the cities that Ambrose was charged with overseeing, the Bishop of Milan died. And they had to decide who the new bishop was going to be. So Ambrose went to the meeting of the church, but he went there specifically to make sure that violence didn't erupt between the two warring groups in the church. So he went there just to, you know, keep things calm. But while he was there at the meeting, the representatives of the church from both sides started calling out that Ambrose be elected as bishop. But he didn't want to be bishop. In fact, at this point in his life, he wasn't even baptized yet. And they're calling for him to be bishop. So he says, no, I don't want to be your bishop. So what do they do? They arrest him. Of course, that's what you do. They arrest him and hold him until he agrees to be their bishop. I think this is a perfect example of what it looks like to serve under compulsion and not willingly. Now, I don't think anybody here in this room will ever be arrested for saying no to a leadership position. We didn't have to do that with Josh, uh, Josh, Chris, and Jesse. Lock them in the basement of the church until they say, yes, I guess I'll be an elder. No, we didn't do that. But I think this is instructive for us, though, that we shouldn't engage in serving and leading in the church just because we feel like someone is twisting our arm. We should serve because we want to serve. This really challenges our heart attitude about leadership and service in the church. We should serve with a joyful and a willing heart, not just begrudgingly saying, oh, I guess I have to do this. Now, second, says not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I know before in this church, we have preached against the prosperity gospel. And what a good time to do that again. You're not in ministry for shameful gain. It's a wicked thing that there are people who become pastors and enter into the ministry because they want to get rich and they want to get famous and they want to get powerful. You're not in it for the money. You're in it to serve. I love how William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators, he puts this, Elders must be filled with enthusiasm in their task of serving God's people. They must find their satisfaction in serving Christ, not in serving money. And I don't think any of us necessarily have the temptation to become a prosperity gospel preacher and become a millionaire by serving Livingstone Church as if we could pull enough money from all of us in this church for any of us to become a, a, a truly wealthy or rich millionaire, but there is still a temptation to go into ministry because you want to be noticed. You want to be famous. You want to gain power. No, it's not about what you get from ministry, but what you can give to the sheep that Christ has put under your care. And then lastly, 
Peter charges them, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I think it's a temptation for older children in a family to automatically become autocratic dictators when they are put in charge of the younger kids, ruling with an iron fist over their little subjects and their own little kingdom because mom and dad are not at home. Now, I know that none of you do that. Lily Cademan, you've probably no, never done that, right? I know I did that, and I was the third child. I was really strange. But I think it's interesting to see how quickly, even in a 10-year-old, power can corrupt, and we want to domineer. We want to become dictators. We want to rule over people. But that's not what the role of an elder or a leader in Christ's church is about. It's not about gaining power and authority for yourself so that you can wield it over other people. It's about serving Christ and his authority as king. And I love that Peter contrasts domineering over those in your charge with being examples to the flock. One way that I think you could describe what he's calling for here is leadership from the front instead of leadership from the back. I don't know if you've ever heard those terms. I think a good illustration of this comes from the Lord of the Rings in the last movie, there's a battle called the Battle of the Black Gate. It's the last large battle in the Lord of the Rings, at least in the movies. There's another big battle after it uh, in Hobbiton in the books, but I'm not going to get into that. It's this last stand effort of the armies of men against the wicked orc armies of Mordor. They stand before this big black gate of this wicked land hoping to draw the armies out so that Frodo carrying the ring can go throw it in Mount Doom and destroy it so that evil can be destroyed. And the orc armies pour out from this black gate and they surround the little army of men. And it's overwhelming. You say there's zero chance that this human army will, will do anything against this wicked, overwhelming army. And Aragorn, the leader of this army, knowing that he will probably give his life in this battle for the sake of the ultimate victory. He gives this incredible speech to the army. And then he turns, faces the enemy, looks at them. He turns back to his friends and he whispers, for Frodo. I love that line. And he takes his sword, he lifts it, and he charges straight into that orc army by himself with the whole army charging at his heels. He wasn't a military leader that stood in the back and said, you all go do the dirty work for me. He said, I'm going to raise my sword. I'm going to charge into the fray. And they're going to follow me into it, into this battle, even, it, even if it means my death and their death. That is leadership from the front. And in the church, the role of elders is to lead from the front, to lead by example and not stand in the back and rule over others and make them do all of the work. And I think that this highlights how important it is for an elder to be a godly man, to be someone who lives a Christian life in a way that you can look at their life and imitate it and say, I want to live like this person and how they pursue Christ and how they obey God's word. You can have an elder or a pastor who is a great preacher a great ruler, but if they are not a godly man, they should not be your elder. 
And that's a high calling. It's a high calling to our elders to pursue godliness and to lead by example. And it's also a calling for you to look to those who are older in the faith, to live and follow after their example as they lead. So the kingly role of elders is is a representative role. It's also a directed role. And lastly, it's a rewarded role. Elders and other Christian leaders don't serve in this life or they shouldn't serve in this life for the rewards that they'll get here and now, whether that be money or fame or power, but for the kingly reward in the life to come. Look at verse four with me. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Even in the midst of the hardships of serving Christ's church, and it can be a hard and self-giving work. Elders, you're supposed to serve with your eyes fixed forward to the reward that awaits you for faithful service. At the end of Paul's ministry, he wrote to a younger pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 through 8. And he wrote this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So elders, leaders, fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith and serve as examples with joy, knowing that there is a crown that is laid up for you that is given by your chief shepherd. So ultimately, we should see here that our King Jesus, he has not abandoned his church in this world. He's left his church with elders, with representative leaders who will rule for him according to his directions and will rule with their eyes focused forward on the return of Christ. But Jesus has also given a kingly role to all of us as Christians. As we confessed earlier in question 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, at the end of it, as it talks about our role as kings, it says, as a king, there's two elements I want you to notice here. As a king, we fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. And both of these elements are actually here in our passage in 1 Peter 5. So we're going to look at two elements of the kingly role of all believers, that we have a fighting role and we have a future reigning role a fighting role, and a future reigning role. So let's look at the fighting role, or as the Heidelberg puts it, fighting with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life. This battle is described in verses 8 and 9 in our passage. In verse 8, we are told to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. On D-Day, there was a German major by the the name of Hans Schmidt. 
I'm not even going to try the German accent on that name. Hans Schmidt was commanding a group of men who were guarding two key bridges. The Germans had wired explosives onto these bridges, and they were ordered to blow up the bridges if the Allied forces got too close. They didn't want to give the Allied forces the advantage of having these bridges to move troops and supplies across if the Allied forces had taken the mainland. But on the night of the attack, Hans Schmidt was not at his post. He was off partying and drinking. So when the British forces arrived at the location he was supposed to be defending, he was unable to give the order to blow up the bridges. So the bridges never blew. And the British captured those bridges and were able to walk right across. It gave them a huge strategic advantage. So for this German major, it was literally his lack of sober-mindedness that kept him from being able to fight the fight that he was meant to do and from fulfilling his role in the army. Now, I don't think this is literally saying that we shouldn't just get drunk as if that's the only way that we should avoid sober-minded, uh, avoid keeping away from sober-mindedness like that German major. But I do think that it means that we need to be alert, that we need to be on guard against our enemy because he is presently prowling around. We're not just waiting for him. He is currently prowling around like a lion seeking to devour and destroy us. So we need to keep our eyes open and live with an awareness of the work of our adversary. One book I know that I've recommended before, but I'm going to recommend it again. And you can even come take a look at it after the service or borrow it from me if you really want, but I only have one copy. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by a Puritan, Thomas Brooks. Fantastic book at understanding how Satan seeks to tempt us, how he seeks to teach lies to us, and how he can combat that with sober-mindedness and with an understanding of the scriptures. It's a very helpful resource for you if you want to check that out. Then in verse 9, Peter goes on to describe this battle more. He says, Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Here he calls us to take a stand against the devil, to resist his lies and his temptations, to stand firm in the sufferings that he brings in this life. And we do this knowing specifically that we stand together. This is not a battle that we are meant to fight alone. And this is why Peter reminds his readers that their own trials and sufferings aren't unique to them, but are common and shared by all believers throughout the world. So don't think in your battle against sin and temptation, in your sufferings and trials of this life, that you need to fight it alone. You are given a body of believers to stand with, who will stand with you and will strengthen you in the midst of the, of the attacks of our adversary. And we can stand together against him. We fight a kingly war against the devil and against our sin. But the good news is that we know the outcome of this war, don't we? We know that in the end, Christ will be victorious and that we will reign with him 
That's the second element that we saw in the Heidelberg, and we'll see it in this passage too. Our kingly role is a fighting role, but it is also a future reigning role. As I've already mentioned, this passage has in mind the context of suffering and trials, of being strangers and exiles in this world. But throughout the book of 1 Peter, one of the things that Peter does is that he lifts the eyes of his readers above the waves and storms of this life, and he fixes their eyes up and out and forward to the coming glory of Christ. He does this uh, in, in multiple places. He does it right away at the beginning. He talks about his own being a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed in verse 1. To the elders, he tells them that they will receive the unfading crown of glory. He fixes their eyes forward. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, the proper time, he may exalt you. And then in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while. Let's just stop there for a second. After you have suffered a little while. The sufferings in this life don't feel short. And in this life, they're not often short. Sometimes our sufferings are with us for years or, in, or our entire life. But Peter here is viewing it in the lens, through the lens of eternal glory. And I love that, that he can call our sufferings short. It says, after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. One of the greatest promises is that we are called to eternal glory with Christ. And in that eternal glory, we will reign with Christ for all eternity. Listen to how Revelation 22 talks about this future glory in verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they, the servants of Christ, us, if we are believers, they will reign forever and ever. God designed us in the beginning, in Genesis 1, to have dominion, to rule over his creation, to rule as kings underneath his authority. And in the new heavens and the new earth, God's perfect design and our highest calling will be found and fulfilled. And that is good news. We will reign with Christ. But why is this future glory and reign so secure for us? How can we know that that is going to come? In the middle of the sufferings and trials, how can we know that when we look above those waves and we look out and forward to glory, that that is a true reality, that it's not just some dream, it's not just something that can be taken from us. We can know because before we are kings, we are subjects. 
Before we're called to rule and have dominion, we ourselves are under the rule and dominion of a good king. The theme of submission in this passage is just as prevalent as the theme of ruling or dominion. In verse 5, those who are younger are called to be subject or submissive to the elders. And then we are all called to have an attitude of humility toward one another. And then in verses 6 and 7, this subjection and humility is directed towards God. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The word here in this verse for mighty comes from the same root as the word for dominion in verse 11. So as you see, if we read it in the English, we might not notice that there's a repetition going on here by Peter. But when you read it in the Greek, it's, it's the, the same root. It's very clear. He's beginning and ending this last section here, kind of by bookending book it with the concept of dominion or reign. And the word refers to the power or the might of God as our ruler, as God as our king, that he is mighty. But notice how Peter applies the mighty dominion of God, God's mighty rule. We are called to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves under his mighty hand, even if in this life God's mighty hand brings us sufferings and trials. And we can submit under God's mighty hand because we know that the same sovereign dominion of God and sovereign kingly hand that brings us into suffering is the same sovereign hand that leads us through suffering and is the hand that exalts us and brings us into future glory with Christ. We know that at the proper time, our God and our King will exalt us. So even as we live out our kingly roles in this life, remember that our greatest hope of reigning with Christ is secure. It's something that cannot be taken from us because we are not the ultimate kings, but because we are under the caring rule of our mighty God and King and our one true shepherd, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a good king and a good shepherd who leads us, feeds us, rules us by his word, directs us. A king who hasn't abandoned us in sufferings and a king who one day will exalt us so that we will reign with him. Father, how often we don't recognize or live in light of these realities. So in the midst of the suffering and trials, God, raise our eyes above those storms and above those waves. Fix our eyes on your sure promises in Christ and our hope in his power and his dominion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.